Hi, welcome to Mother's Guide Through Autism podcast. This podcast is to inspire, support, and build community for mothers raising children with autism. I'm Bridget Shipman, the host and creator of A Mother's Guide Through Autism. This podcast has been inspired by my son, Joseph, who has been living with autism for the past 27 years. If you didn't get a chance to listen to the first episode of The Mother's Guide Through Autism, I recommend that you go back and listen to it. It really gives you a great idea of our background, our beginning, and how this podcast came to be. Joseph and I have teamed up to continue the work of hope to anyone who is living with autism, but especially to the moms who are the expert advocates for their children. As Joseph so profoundly said, I have been his guide through his life. Now Joseph is going to guide us through his own life journey of living with autism. He is now his own expert advocate, although I am still his mother's guide. So this journey that Joseph and I have begun, um, as I had said, it is a hope that we have to give you not just the parent point of view, or in our case, the mother's point of view, but also the child living with autism. So this is unique. This is something that I had envisioned many, many years ago, and It was a hope as Joseph and I were on this journey together that we would be able to tell our stories and help those out there Um, in the very beginning. If you're in the early intervention stage, that's what we're going to be concentrating on today. But also, if you're in any of the stages, whether you are uh, uh, in preschool, you're in elementary school, you're of the age of when the hormones are start kicking in, and uh, although junior high is pretty rough anyway in high school, what are some of the challenges there? So we're going to be taking you all the way through what our story is, our experiences, the therapies that have worked, the therapies that maybe we didn't see so much result. Last episode, we talked about uh, early intervention and a therapy called auditory integration training. We also uh, talked about the Wilbarger therapeutic pressure brush, and I've kept a detailed journal about what our experiences have been and exactly what our story is to help you make the decision for yourself and for your child if you feel like this is something that you would like to try. It is costly if you have to travel like we did. It's not a cheap therapy. And when you go in and you look it up, they will tell you that this therapy, auditory integration training, as we will refer to it, AIT training, has inconclusive findings. So this is our story, our case study, and we hope that this helps you. So last week I shared what it was like on my end of things for Joseph's dad and I, and this uh, week we're going to have Joseph tell his perspective and his insight of the experience of the auditory integration training. 
Uh, I talked about it um, with him. Um, We're hoping to get his insight, as I said, and not only about the AIT training, but I also want to take a moment and just for those of you that are still questioning whether your child may or may not be in the spectrum, something that I hope you will hear today is even if it's still a question mark in your heart, perhaps you haven't been diagnosed, perhaps there is denial there, which trust me, I also had. Uh, if it, if any of that comes up for you and you see that your child could benefit from any of the sensory therapy training, although it is still found to be inconclusive, please, please listen to this podcast. Listen to the insights that Joseph and I are offering you. I remember when Joseph was in preschool and our pediatrician at the time who supported the autistic support group that I started in our community, who was a great support, had a son that was about eight months older than Joseph, and he was diagnosed in the autistic spectrum. And again, remember, this is in the the 90s and uh, mid-90s, somewhere in there. And This child, who Joseph and I decided we would call George for our purposes, was further ahead than Joseph in all development. He displayed much better fine motor skills, large motor skills. They had occupational therapy, speech therapy, those therapies at, at that time that were only offered And they had them together because at that time in our small town and community, there weren't very many autistic children identified or diagnosed. So these two began this journey together. And as I observed this journey with these two boys, I noticed that my son was behind this young guy. And I watched and I observed all the way through high school. Sadly, his mother passed away, and there wasn't a lot of early intervention that this child was exposed to. So we're going to fast forward to high school. Joseph was no longer on an IEP. He graduated on the honors diploma. And he did it functioning. Did he need some cues and some help? Yes, of course. Mostly with the social side of things. But George, on the other hand, who didn't have the cues, who didn't have the early intervention, who did not have these therapies, although I shared it with our community, was... Now held back a year. He was a year ahead of Joseph. Now he was held back behind Joseph. So he was held back for for two years. And as I had shared before in the very first episode, I was a director at the high school of our career academy program. And George spent most of his time walking around didn't really understand what he was doing in classes. I would look in there and it literally broke my heart. It was not 
a teacher's deficit for sure. The teachers really tried to work with this young man. I tried to work with this young man. In fact, I was the one who gave him the tour of the high school, helped him transition into this new building, new classes, new faces. The librarian at that time, who um, has such a great heart, kind of took him under her wing, and he would spend a lot of time in the library with her. And still to this day, um, and I'll let Joseph share a little bit more about that um, and his perspective, but here's what I believe I know for sure, is that if this young man could have had the early intervention work and the cues all the way through his school I, I I really believe this young man would be functioning in society. I really believe that with all my heart. So the reason I'm sharing that story with you and what I had observed is if you're in question, just consider doing these early intervention therapies with your child, even if you find out that they're not diagnosed in the spectrum and it helps them move forward in motor skills fine motor skills, any speech development and social skill areas, it is worth it. It's not so much about the label as much as it is about looking at your child, knowing what they need, and being the expert advocate for your child. And I just wanted to share that with you as a mother, one mother's guide to another. Uh, Just take a breath and listen to our story. So I'm going to go to Joseph now, and I would like to welcome you, Joseph, to our podcast. Again. (laughs) Yes, again. And as we tell our story, today we're going to concentrate on your experience with the auditory integration training. I would love for you to give us your insight and per, and perspective of what of what your experience was with this AIT training. Well, there's not a terrible lot that I can remember because um, I mean I was about a three or four year old child at the time, but there are things that have always stuck with me. Like I have very vivid sort of memories of I don't know, like little flash moments. Um. But it's kind of like you were talking about with the last episode, that that was kind of the moment where I started to wake up. Because as far as my earliest, earliest memories, that's about as far back as they go. And there's a lot of speculation as to why. I don't remember it much before that or stuff in between that. But I definitely remember the Dr. Seuss. I remember being in that hotel room, basically, in Sykeston, you know. And recalling it later in my childhood, I had wondered what the deal was with that. You know, why do I remember us in a different house or hotel room? And why do I remember having headphones on with ducks? I didn't know what this was all for. And when you were talking about some of that stuff in the last episode of uh, having to hold me down, that's not anything I remember at all. So... I suspect maybe that was the point where I really started to form memories of certain things because I was actually observing stuff now instead of, again, uh, I'm speculating. I suspect that I might have been trying to deal with all the sensory stuff 
So it's kind of hard to observe your surroundings and form memories when you're focusing on stuff being too loud or that sort of thing. Yeah. So let's go to Dr. Seuss because, mm-hmm. well, there there's a couple things that I really want to get some clarity and perspective on, not only for the other moms out there listening, but also for me, because as I had shared in another episode, there was a lot of suffering going on for me because mm-hmm. I thought it was hurting you or you were being hurt in some way. And so that was part of my pain. So let, let's go back to when I had shared and, again, had documented everything, every day, uh, every, actually every session that you had in AIT training. And the very first one being the hardest because it really seemed like from watching you that this was hurting you, mm-hmm. that your dad and I had to hold you. And like I had shared before, it was very emotional in it. It was just ripping my heart out because I thought, oh my goodness, what, what am I doing to you? And when you say that, again, there's an example of me suffering and you were not suffering as far as you mm-hmm. can remember. Well, yeah, I certainly don't have a first person recollection of that, like the you know, the stuff that you went through, the stuff you were feeling is definitely all stuff I've learned after the fact. So a lot of my memory is kind of a mix between yours and mine, right? Sure. Sure. So when we referred to this, um, your dad and I did of you waking up, you had shared some things with me about that experience. And, um, Can you just go back a little more, give us a little more detail of the waking up, like you had just shared with the memories, but what else, what else was going on with you? Well, I know one of the earlier memories that I have that I can vividly recall is of waking up in the middle of the night of, I was kind of in my own room, I think. And there was a bathroom probably to the right of me. And I don't know, there was something about a bath and this and that in there and some fears about the drain and the dark, you know, like that might have really been the moment where I actually started to take in my surroundings and the sensory content of the world just didn't overwhelm me. Hmm. So I could focus on, oh, hey, I like uh, these books with these pictures and that sort of thing. Because then the next memory after the bathtub thing and the waking up in the middle of the night is watching these uh, Dr. Seuss VHS tapes that, of course, went great with the books because there's that whole visual thing there. And I think that also started to help develop um, at least connections with words that that was really the beginning of the communication. Because not only was I beginning to hear stuff more, but then I was making the connection of words as a visual sort of stimulus or visual information because on those VHS tapes, they go through the books page by page. It has the classic illustrations we all know. And then it displays the words, says certain sentences in context. So that may have really been the true beginning of my communication development as a late toddler. Hmm. So, wow, that that's really great information. When you're when you're referring to the bathtub, can you say more about that? I think 
um, again, there's a lot of uh, vagueness as far as the details, but I definitely kind of remember how I felt. And it was kind of a mix between kind of, in a, it was very adrenaline based, I would probably call it, that it was kind of this fear of the unknown, like this dark I had apparently never seen before. But it, I don't know, it is that kind of weird magical moment between like in the wee hours of the morning, you don't quite know if it's mar- morning or day. You know, it was a real kind of weird sort of indefinite presence about it. Yeah. You know, that is, it's far more uh, a feeling than something I can always describe. But one thing I definitely know is that there are parts of that that will just stick with me um, throughout the rest of my life for whatever reason. Yeah. So you felt the change. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, I guess you could say so. That there was definitely some kind of change in a presence about me, because it, it was almost like I hadn't, it, I hadn't really lived or I hadn't been alive at that point. Mm, <laughs> almost wow. kind of a rebirth, I guess. That is so interesting because that is really and truly what I was, or felt like I was observing. Mm-hmm. I felt like, oh wow. Like you were more present. That's why we called it, we felt like you started waking up during AIT. Mm -hmm. Um, Going back before AIT, so you don't have a lot of memory like you you just shared with us, but I still am curious, so I'm going to ask this. Do you remember before AIT or any early memories, you probably don't have that timeline, but where sound hurt you or being afraid of things because of the sound, do you have any memory of that? I really don't have a lot of memory of any sensory experience before AIT, but I do definitely remember some sound issues many years even after AIT. Because, I mean, obviously with any kind of therapy, whether results are inconclusive or definitely conclusive or whatever. It's not like it's going to cure the thing instantly, you know, but it probably would have helped. It probably did help a lot. Like if I didn't have the AIT, the pain that I felt from hearing fire alarms or the school bells would have been probably 10 times worse. I understand. Do you remember when you were in kindergarten? So, so what we noticed, I think what we're, we're agreeing on mm-hmm. is AIT was where you started to wake up, where you started to notice things. I noticed you noticing things yeah. as the observer. <laughs> and your language improving, words making more sense to you, mm-hmm. to sum it up. And then we were had the experience when you were at the fair, not that long after AIT. And so, yes, you still had some sensitivities to hearing, uh, some fears related to that. So do you remember what that was like? Like when we went to the fair and you loved animals, mm-hmm. you loved going to the zoo, you were fascinated by the animals, right? So mm-hmm. we took you to the fair so you could see the cows and the horses and the animals that you loved. And of course, I still like to do that. (laughs) Of course you do. And I walked in a hunched over position, 
my voice next to your ears walking you through it because they had these really big fans because it was hot. Oh, yeah. And the fans were loud. And so I took you slowly through that. So there were some sound sensitivities. Do you recall that at all? What's funny is that as you're mentioning that, some of that does start to come back to me a bit where I definitely wanted to see the animals. But it's like as soon as I walked in, all the sound simulation of the other people, of course, the loud fans, you know, that I probably started to freak out. And then there was that kind of very close presence that kind of kept me tethered, if only barely. (laughs) Yes. Like I was still kind of focused on the fear of the all the stuff happening when I was trying to enjoy the animals. But of course, there you were, you know, and that probably made it a bit slower than would be ideal. But yeah. either way, I got through it, you know, that it was kind of a relief to get out of the barn. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And as we tell our story together There's other incidents, so I don't want to jump ahead too far, of us experiencing things together. So something that we might like to share later in another episode would be how for you, although you were terrified once you experienced it and saw that things were going to be okay after you went through the experience, such as the big barn with the loud noises then the next time you would file that away and you'd be fine with it. Mm -hmm. You still might have some apprehension to go through that, but nonetheless, you would go through it. Mm -hmm. So what I noticed is experience equals growth. Yeah, and I think that's a relatively universal thing, especially for people who are raising autistic people. Is um, there's a lot similar with the university, <laughs> the universality of growing up, you know, that um, we all kind of freeze a little when a baby, say, bumps a leg or something like that. And they may very well cry because probably if up to that point, if there wasn't anything as painful or more painful than that, then that's the worst thing ever. You know, so at that, at least at that point, even if my hearing before AIT was really sensitive. It was still sensitive to that point. But as you get more exposure, more experience, you see that it isn't that bad and it becomes less so over time anyway. So now you're 27. So Mm -hmm. we're going to jump way forward here. Do you still deal with uh, sensory issues with your hearing? I don't really think so as much anymore. I mean, obviously there are things that might be too loud for me, but I kind of chalk that up to just kind of normal everyday hearing at this point. Mm-hmm. Great. That, that's so, um, I'm happy to hear that you're not dealing with that, that you're able to process he- the different frequencies and that your, your hearing has adjusted more of um, a less painful experience with life, right? Yeah, it is really more or less what I think we would probably call normal Mm-hmm. You know, which means as I get older, it's probably going to get a bit more downhill from here. But let's not focus on that until about 30 years from now. Okay. <laughs> I'll meet you here. How's that? Oh, hey, yeah, that sounds like a plan. <laughs> um, so is there anything else that you would like to share or give insight as far as your recollection of AIT training? Really, the only thing that I can think of is... There was just a lot of stuff that I didn't know 
because, I mean, you don't exactly have the wherewithal as a four-year-old child, whether you're on the spectrum or not, to be like, better, you know, file this away for later, you know, so I can recall my developmental memories. But I think it's interesting to look back on that, too, because it kind of helps you make sense of who you are and what you are now. Like, you can get more of a present sort of outside looking in at what you were like because once when you're in it it's not like you know you're in anything in particular yeah to to me it was just life happening and all the noises are too loud why are they too loud i know you talked a little bit about dr seuss but Mm -hmm. for your dad and i that was taking you to heaven if you will you knew that after the session, your dad and I would drive into a nearby town that wasn't too far away that had a Barnes and Noble, and you knew exactly where to go, what to do, and you had chosen, you got to pick. You, you were developing a Dr. Seuss collection of books mm-hmm. and loved them. What do you remember? What was your fascination with Dr. Seuss? Well, I mean, it was probably definitely better than, uh, as far as the enjoyment, (laughs) probably explains why I remember more of that. But I don't know. I guess it was, um, I guess it might have been the visual stimulation of it a bit, I suppose. Because, I mean, the illustrations of them, uh, if you've ever seen a Dr. Seuss book, you know, people who haven't lived under a rock, I guess I'm saying. (laughs) Uh, they're really bright, colorful, unique illustrations, and they're really engaging, I guess. There was just something about it that attracted me to that, as well as the wordplay, I guess. Because I really enjoyed the books like the Oh Say Can You Say with all the tongue twisters. I enjoyed Fox and Socks with the certain rhymings, and especially the voices Dad would do in an imitation of the VHS. It was really the first thing I became a huge fan of. Do you still like Dr. Seuss? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I still definitely have an appreciation for it. And if there's ever an opportunity I can get to read it, I'll jump on that for sure. You know, it's still fun. And that's why I think it has such a universality. That's why a lot of people like Dr. Seuss for sure. Well, I can see you're still passionate about it, and I loved hearing about it. So thank you for sharing that. Um, So... I had also discussed earlier in today's episode, as we were talking at the beginning, that I had discussed what I had observed as you and George went through your school years. What is your take on that experience? I think my earliest memory of me and George and OT, uh, occupational therapy together, was just kind of meeting him with um, my speech therapist at the time. But, I mean, it was just kind of a normal getting to know this kid that happened to stutter. You know, like, I that's where I learned what stuttering was. You know, that there are different people with different issues like that. And it was kind of funny because when I started to learn about autism, I still didn't identify myself with that yet. And I figured, oh, he's the autistic one. I mean, I don't know why I'm here, but... You know, of course, I learned later that there were spectrums and that we were on different ends of it. But I remember him being a generally nice kid, you know. And a lot of my impressions of thinking about that, of course, come later where I wonder if he was really trying to reach out and communicate to me. You know, I wonder if he thought of us as friends or what he thought. I don't know. 
but I know that we still, I know if I were to see him again, I feel like he would remember some of that stuff from back then too, that it was still kind of this thing we shared, you know, oh, you go to the lady too, me too. Um, And that might've been really important to kind of understand how friendships and bonds work with people, you know, like, oh, this is what interacting with people my own age is kind of like. Do you wonder where he might be today as an adult like you are right now? Well, I mean, I don't wonder all the time, obviously, because, you know, I'm a 27-year-old guy, got stuff to do. But I do wonder about that, especially since the last time I saw him was many years ago. And I've tried to look him up on social media, too, to kind of see if I could... I guess, say, hey, how you doing? Just to kind of catch up and maybe recollect to remember some of that stuff. And it would be really interesting to kind of get a full, I guess, story about it, you know, to kind of make sense of it. Because, I mean, back then we were kids. This is just, it was part of our daily routine to go see this lady to help us figure out what to say in this situation and look me in the eye. (laughs) Yeah. Some of that work that you did in your early years. Do you remember him in junior high or high school at all? I do remember some of it. And the thing that struck me most about it is that he really hadn't changed that much. Like, I mean, a lot of the people that I knew along with him had kind of grown up and developed certain personalities and groups that they hung out with. But George kind of remained the same. As far as his general demeanor, Stutter was still there. You know, it it was almost like he was still the same age as we were back then, but just bigger this time. Hmm. That that is like I just I really got that. So although he grew and looked like a young adult, Mm -hmm. the way his social behavior was and some of the other things, his speech like you you were talking about really hadn't changed that much. Not really. It it might have changed only a little bit due to his uh, physical growth uh, going into puberty and all that. But it really was like he was just a bigger, you know, however old we were back then. Mm -hmm. Bigger version of himself as a five or six year old. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, that's some great insight um, uh, because what we're trying to do here is we're trying to Share our story and really the reason you're here, you're articulate, you're a very, well, and I may be partial here, but you're a (laughs) great person. You're successful. I'm so very proud of you. And the fact that we can do this work together is what I'm sure every expert mother guides advocate would hope for what they're dealing with with their child. No matter where they are on the spectrum, the message is that earlier intervention really does make a difference. And we have the story that that uh, supports that and that we want to offer hope out there. And from back from the very first episode when I had talked about um, that this, no matter where you are, in this, it is going to be okay. You're going to be okay. So we're going to continue sharing our story. We're going to continue sharing the mother's perspective and the son's perspective or child's perspective. And 
what our hope is together that if you're listening to this, if we made your day just a little lighter, we offered you a little more hope and some light to shine upon you, then this is all worth this whole journey just to support and love each other. Thank you, Joseph, for offering Mother Guides your insight of what your own experience has been on these topics. And we look forward to hearing more from you in the upcoming episodes. It's a pleasure to do it. So we will continue our discussion on early intervention therapies, acceptance, how pain pushes, and many other topics of our story to offer you support. Hope as you continue your own journey as a mother's guide. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe, review, and share it on social media. You can download my free guide, Five Things I Wish I Knew Raising My Son with Autism, by going to my website, bmvlifecoach.com.